0: Welcome to the third podcast in the OLAC series. This one focuses on instructional leadership. Stories from the educators we interviewed show that becoming an instructional leader is a journey, and the journey looks different for each person. I'm Margaret Dudek, your host for this podcast. I'm here with two educators. Terry Garrett, principal at Gorsuch West Elementary School in the Lancaster City School District and Erin Bowie, Principal at Schreiber Reading and Math Preparatory School in the Canton City School District. They shared their perspectives on instructional leadership and its applications in their schools. Thank you for speaking with us. Let's start off with your thoughts about becoming an instructional leader.
1: I think you're an instructional leader from the very beginning. Uh, teachers look to you for answers. They will come to you with questions on what they should do. So even if you're not real qualified or real experienced, you still are the go-to person. Parents will come to you and say, what should I do? So being an instructional leader starts clear back when you're a lead teacher too because you take on those leadership roles. But when you step into the principal role, you have even more people seeking your knowledge and your input. So it happens right away but you find yourself not always having the answers, so you want to get better at what you do.
0: Was learning also central to your early work as an instructional leader, Aaron? For me, it was
2: the level of intellectual challenge that you are facing. It's not always X's and O's, and you cross the teeth out to side. No, 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 there are, you have to weigh your decisions on the impact of everybody else who is around you, who you're supporting, and those who, you know, come to you for help and assistance. That complexity intrigues me because it's the nature of there's so many other factors on whatever issue you have right in front of you. But you have to dig deep and really evaluate it and analyze it to figure out what do you do and what's your best course of action for success.
0: Instructional leadership also connects to the other aspects of school leadership. So it's a process of problem-finding and problem-solving. Could you expand on what that's like?
2: It is a very complex, intertwined, sometimes daunting challenge of managing bits, pieces and components and focusing your energies. Trying to balance students, community, staff, financial resources, safety and security, curriculum and instruction, assessment, data interpretation and analysis, all the meanwhile establishing a culture and community, whether it be for the building, the community, students,
0: staff. That's a lot to juggle. Terry, how do you see that complexity? Does it affect your decision making? I um
1: I try to get input Whenever I go to make a decision that's going to impact people, I try to get input from anybody that it's going to impact because if I can get support, and not always support, sometimes I have to make a decision, but I want people to understand where it's coming from. Just like tomorrow morning, I'm going to have a staff meeting and I'm going to institute a couple of changes just due to the the school shootings and things like that it's really kind of non-negotiable. Sometimes you just have to do that as an administrator. But when I'm making changes, whether it be to a schedule or whether it be to duties or um, a change that we're going to do in the building, uh, I try to get input from the stakeholders so that they can buy into it and have some ownership too. Because if I get people on board, the change is so much easier, and so much sweeter. It just just happens because people will say, oh, I understand where she's coming from. Boom.
0: It sounds like sometimes you might involve stakeholders in decision-making, Terry, and sometimes you just need to share your thinking with them. I'm wondering, Aaron, do you have any particular strategies for sharing your thinking with your staff or other stakeholders?
2: Everything I do, I have to tie it to something else that we have done. To pretty much say, we're going to go deeper. We're not doing something different or something new. We're going deeper into the intellectual knowledge of what we're doing. Because the deeper we go, the better you all can potentially understand what it is we're trying to do. And then theoretically, if I explain why we're going in the direction we're going, then hopefully it helps you understand the whys, the hows.
0: Could you tell us a little more about the value of explaining the whys and the hows?
2: When you explain why you're doing something, how you're going to get there, and the direction we're going to go, folks are a lot easier to drive and push and push and push to get there.
0: Do you consider this a top-down approach?
2: One thing that I've tried to do is ensure that there still is that (coughs) instructional autonomy within the classroom level. So I set a goal and a target, but I don't have to tell you how to get there. I give you structures and frameworks of how are we going to do it, intellectual foundations that we're building on top of, and I say, okay, here's where we need to be. How do we want to get there? So I try to leave a lot of that classroom autonomy, that creativity, that folks and teachers especially need to have to say, all right, here's what we have to do. How are we going to do it? How are we going to do it together?
0: Why do you think this is so important?
2: Because I can tell you how to do it. But then I own it, and it's only me owning it. In lieu of, here's where we have to go. Here's a couple different ways to think we can get there. Some, here's the black ice we got to watch out for, so we don't slip on. And then here are the things that will give us good traction. There's the salt that you throw down and give us good grip. What direction is going to work best for our organization, our culture, and our students?
0: Wow, I love that metaphor. You help teachers see the black ice, but you let them figure out ways to get traction and when the teachers figure out solutions then they own those solutions. Let me turn to you for a minute, Terry. Do you think this works differently when a school confronts major staffing changes? I think you've had that experience, right? Bringing people I had
1: people come here from eight different buildings. So when you start designing new TBTs that you know, when we came from one smaller building to one larger building there had to, there was a year we're now in the third year and we're just starting to see some real trust and some real working together and how it's beneficial. Uh, you would have new people sitting around the table that didn't know each other and didn't trust each other. Because when you're a part of a TBT, you have to be able to be honest. You're vulnerable because you're coming in and you're saying, I gave a formative assessment and my kids fell miserably. And I need your help. And that doesn't always happen in TBTs or there's not that that comfort and that trust. So it takes a little bit of time when you bring together people from eight buildings to make up new TBTs to get that trust and to get that um, confidence in one another
0: and provide that help and support to one another. It sounds like instructional leadership needs to address different circumstances at different schools. At one school, the issue might be establishing new TBTs, um, at another, it might be helping teachers add to their toolkit for helping struggling readers. So what it looks like might depend, at least in part, on context. It also has its own flavor. For instance, you each have your own way of approaching instructional leadership in light of the particular situations you face. Could you speak to that?
2: always say we set the trajectory of our district we set the trajectory of these students these children's lives we know what our current metrics are reading by third grade if they don't leave us equipped with those skills and the ability or a solid plan on how do you get them there guess what we just did we set our district up for failure we set our middle schools up for, we set our high schools up for failure or success you know, research says that it takes me 20 minutes of intervening on a kindergarten student that struggles, and I can move that child and get them back where they need to be. 45 minutes to an hour for a first grader. Once I get to my second grade class, I'm looking at an hour to two hours worth of time.
0: It sounds like core instruction in the early grades is a strategy that is working for you.
2: So if you're going to close those gaps and do that work now, then it's going to take another five years back to close that gap. So, when I transitioned and came here to Kansas City, it allowed to focus on the instructional components. It really lent itself to say look, if you can't move students intellectually, if you can't support, encourage, drive teachers to make the right choices to move students intellectually, then you're really setting a lot of people up for failure.
0: Both of you seem to be saying, though in different ways, that the instructional leader really needs to establish and maintain focus, and maybe that focus ought to be on just a few major aims and a few major strategies. It seems like the leader's clear vision and commitment really set the tone. Maybe that's something that has to be there no matter what the leadership style of the principal turns out to be. Sometimes you have to be the one that kind of steps up there and says this
1: this is this is not right, you know Mm -hmm. Something's got to change here and you know if you're that type of person You know that that might be you know, what's on your tombstone? She she said it like it was type thing and sometimes we have to stand on something and we have to say You know, this is good stuff or this needs to change and that might be our way that that's that's how
0: we're leading I've done some reading about this idea I think it's called moral leadership or ethical leadership. Terry, you seem to think that being this kind of leader can also fit with a shared leadership approach. Can you talk some more about that? We may not always have the answers, but we can see that there's a situation
1: and we need to figure out some solutions to it. And as a team, we'll figure that out together. You know, you don't have to have all the answers, but you have to circle the wagons and bring in the people that are with you that can help you Find those answers and put new strategies into place, whether it's academic or behavioral or, or security or whatever the case may be. When you see the the sharing that would have never happened before, that's when I pat myself on the back and say, You started that sharing, you made it a comfortable place to learn. And a comfortable place to share, and it's working. And that's when you feel good about what you're doing as an instructional
0: leader. Has this been your experience as well, Aaron?
2: It's the quintessential juggling act of you got a lot of different balls in the air at one time, and you're trying to get them all in sync to move harmoniously. Because as one falls, another one's going to rise, and it's keeping that cyclical process where everything moves together. I mean, so I mean, it's one of those where borderline impossible, organized chaos.
0: I think I'm hearing that instructional leadership requires you to keep a lot of different groups' needs in mind while also moving instructional practice and academic achievement forward. Do you have examples of programs or initiatives that are bringing the school together around these critical parts of the work? Terry, can we start with you? So we spent a lot of time this year focusing on
1: Our PBIS, our rules, our expectations, our consistency. Uh, We're implementing every day a a curriculum called Second Step, and it goes through, you know, empathy and understanding and trying to identify your problems and how do you deal with a problem, you know. Do you take deep breaths? Do you go for a walk? Things like that. And then we've tried to put different things in our building in place um, so that kids have different options we put in cool down rooms. We have stationary bikes in the hallways. Uh, We have pedals under their desk. We have wiggle seats. We have stress balls, things like that. So meeting the needs of the children emotionally and socially has been a real emphasis. And I feel that it has to start with me and my support and when, it, when someone comes to me and says, you know, I want to do yoga in the morning with, with my class, I'm like, go for it. You know, I have to support these initiatives in order to give the kids what they need, and then we can meet their academic needs. Aaron, how
0: about at Schreiber?
2: The true heavy lifting of being a leader of a building is to teach students to read and basic numeracy and literacy I spent a lot of time trying to learn the craft and learn the trade, and over the past two years, that professional development series that we've been doing and that I've completed has opened my eyes. That has given me the understandings of the hierarchy and structure of teaching literacy, teaching language, writing, spelling, comprehension, understanding of vocabulary, all the main components, and what to look for, what to push, how to direct my teachers, and then Also, how to help facilitate and support their growth, because I know the smarter my teachers get at whatever craft or or skill I need them to do, the smarter they are at it, the better they can provide for the needs of my students.
0: Aaron, it seems like the literacy work at your school has provided a great deal of focus and cohesion. What do you see as the sources of focus and cohesion at Gorsuch, Terry? And what symbolizes that focus?
1: I have a banner out in the hallway that talks about when you come into this building, we're a family. And I t- tell my teachers all the time, this is the best seven hours that you can give to your children. Make sure you're greeting them at the door. You, you know, if they're giving you a hug or you're telling them good morning, and you're making sure they have breakfast, you're making sure they get their lunch. And none of these things uh, can occur unless you're involved in their lives. You give them a safe place to learn. You have a family unit where you're working together and and you talk about those situations during that family meeting in the morning, those are probably our, our non-negotiables. Make sure you're doing everything on your part to, to make it a good seven hours where they feel safe, loved, and they can learn.
0: Erin, can you talk a little about the results you're seeing as a result of maintaining focus and building a cohesive professional culture?
2: Our work in our pilot project has, for me personally, been unbelievably beneficial. And I've seen my teaching staff grow with their level of confidence in what they do. I mean, teachers that were, look, I'm, I'm math by trade. Say, well, I'm math and science by trade, too, so I go with that, I get you. But they're comfortable, and they're, they're executing in the classroom and knocking stuff out for literacy instruction that I know they never would have been confident to do if they did not have that foundational knowledge Uh, and we've been able to push like we have over the past three years now.
0: It sounds like non-negotiables relating to instruction and even just how to treat children are at the core of instructional leadership for you both, even though your specific approaches might differ. What do you see as the next challenges facing you as leaders?
1: I feel like it's a journey that never ends. It's one that you continue to get better at as the instructional leader of the building, I need to continue to increase my knowledge and to find new ways of doing things, uh, new tools to help my, to share with my teachers. There is so much out there that you're always trying to help teachers find a new strategy, a new tool, or a new um, discipline technique to reach the students in their classroom, which in effect creates an environment for the whole building.
2: You either get humbled and sit back and reflect like, all right, I thought I knew what I was doing, but I don't know. And you get into that internal battle of, to really not know what I'm doing? Or is this just something that happens that I have to be prepared for? And it's the next layer of challenge to embrace and keep going.
0: Terry, Aaron, bringing a school together to support student growth and achievement is a big job and one that can be very satisfying. Your comments offer a lot for us to think about. And before we end our podcast, I want to take just a minute to reiterate what I see as the four major takeaways. First, an instructional leader needs to help everyone maintain focus. Second, the leader needs to build a school culture that emphasizes care as well as continuous improvement. Third, Instructional leaders need to bring teachers together to plan, learn, and solve problems collaboratively. Finally, instructional leaders can have different leadership styles so long as they use key practices to establish and maintain focus, collaboration, inquiry, and a positive and productive school culture. I'm very grateful to you for your time, and I think our OLAC listeners will be as well. Thank you for sharing your insights into the complexities and the rewards of being an instructional leader.
1: My name is Stanley Dudek. I provide support and technical assistance for OLAC podcasts through the University of Cincinnati's Systems Development and Improvement Center. Credit for our podcast music goes to Expendable Friend, whose musical composition is licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 international license. Thank you for listening.